From KIOS in Omaha and Exarbon Creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Brent Crampton of Hillside Solutions, who's trying to encourage Omaha to embrace a circular food system, not one reliant on all kinds of unnecessary waste. In our sustainable future, you know, you have to imagine you know, what, how are the adjustments we're going to make in society. And one of them is that every major community and, and, and town is going to have an industrial composting facility nearby. Um, and the good news is that Omaha, the greater Omaha area, already has one. Stick around to learn how Omaha's future can become more sustainable, more eco-friendly, and less wasteful as we find ways to navigate the climate crisis. We'll be back with all of that after this break right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I am Tom Noblock, and today I am talking with somebody who I don't actually know him personally, but I felt like the stars would align, and at some point we would have to talk. I'm talking today with Brent Crampton, who is part of Hillside Solutions, which is providing industrial composting for Omaha. Now, if you've been listening to the show for a while or you've been following anything I do, you know, I, I got kind of obsessed with composting, how, how long ago? Maybe five, six years ago. And it really changed my worldview. It really helped me understand the interconnectedness of everything, of what it means to be biodegradable, of what, it, what we can do with our trash so that our legacy is not just a bunch of plastic and bottles. You know, it really helps provide a way to sort of see your life as connected to everything. And that sounds kind of mystical and dopey and dumb, and I'm sorry about that, but it's really cool to me, and I'm really excited about it. And so I was very excited to get the chance to talk to Brent Crampton about ways to bring that to Omaha and to make it something that everybody can share in as a way to sort of think about how do we have a future that's more green in ways that are easy adaptations that we can make and we can have some fun with it. You can maybe your mind can be blown like mine was, right? So here's my conversation with Brent Crampton right here. Please enjoy. And please consider composting. That's that's my my propaganda for you. So all right, here you go. Here's the conversation. I just say first of all, uh, you know, before we do the life story, uh, composting is kind of this weird thing for me. Uh, I don't know if you listened to any of the previous episodes, but I'm, I'm somebody who. I, I can't remember exactly when it happened, but I, I feel like when I started to compost and I started to become aware of, I don't know, just the way that things biodegrade, what happens after that, just, I, it was kind of this mind blowing event for me where it's sort of like, it reshaped the way I thought about everything once I started thinking about waste. And I turned into mm-hmm. this, I think kind of like annoying person to most of the people around me because it's, you know, like once you make that shift, it's really difficult not to try to tell everybody else, you know, like try to get them on board, try to tell them to compost or, to, you know, just to be more conscious of everything in their lives. Uh, and so I don't know. I mean, maybe we could start for you. Just I mean, was there like uh, was some of your awareness of all of those issues? Did you grow up with that or did you hit some kind of epiphany moment like I did? No, I uh, I, I hit I hit, an, I hit a epiphany moment and then i had several epiphanies and, and it's funny you use that word epiphany because uh i do a lot of uh like presentations and education stuff and uh i i'll i tell my journey uh as a, as an ex- discovery of these epiphanies using that specific word because that's really like what it feels like um uh, i've always been you know this 
progressive leaning kind of guy. And so it's like, yeah, sustainability. And yeah, every cycle, uh, you know, but I didn't really know anything about it as I, what I came to find out once I got into the industry. And so, you know, for me, like I didn't go to school and get a degree in sustainability or anything like that. Um, I went, you know, grew up here in Omaha. I went to UNO. I got a degree. A degree, double double degree, you know, one in journalism, one in religious studies. Uh, but you know, I, I went off into to DJing and event promoting, and and owned a nightclub and operated that. Um, and uh, I just kind of picked up, you know, in terms of compost and recycling, just the things that you pick up as a normal person that's not really clued into that, which is not a lot, and it's a lot of not a lot of factual stuff. Uh, so then, when I got into the industry, it was like bam. Same thing. Like if, if only people knew this information, they would be compelled to act and change, you know? So I totally relate to that sentiment. So religious studies, is that, you said you got a degree in that? Yeah. Tell, tell yeah. me about that. What was your, what were you drawn to in religion and what, what was the plan there? Well, so, you know, different than theology or study of God, religion was like, um, I'll give you an example. Like, so imagine uh, college days, on campus you're talking to somebody and that person is like okay i gotta go to class and like where are you going it's, uh business calculus something or other i'm like great i'm gonna go learn about hinduism you know i'm gonna go learn about uh indigenous cultures you know that i mean that was for me it was like it was this process of discovery of of the world and the people that we lived in uh i lived, lived around through the experience of religions and so <laughs> It was, I, I loved it because it was also this process of, you know, these epiphanies and, and discovery and, and the things that you learned about history and people uh, and the religion and, how, and religion, how it played a role in that really felt kind of almost like this, you're learning information. It's almost dangerous. And this is why they don't teach these things, you know, because if people knew this, man, the society would be different. And so it was, it was fun for me. It was a process of discovery, um, you know, looking back on it, one could say, well, wow, that was a waste of time because you don't use any of it. But what I found out and when I was in, um, throughout my twenties, you know, enmeshed in nightlife and DJing, you know, the events that I programmed were specifically, um, about bringing different types of people together that normally don't come together through dance music. Uh, and so, um, you know, we tried to have a very multicultural environment, um, and one day I found out, uh, you know, being graduated from that, some uh, current college student came to me and said, oh, you know, I'm taking a, a, a class from a you know, religious studies professor. And she uses you as an example of what you can do with your degree. Because here you are, you know, you learn about plural, pluralism, you know, this idea that people have different ideas and come from different backgrounds. And that's okay. We should be accepting of that. And I took that uh, mode of thinking and then flipped it into... Uh, nightlife. And that was a uh, manifestation of my degree in some way, according to my, my former professor. So there, you know, it's crazy, but you know, there's a lot of different ways that can come into uh, being, you know? So did you grow up religious then? So I have kind of weaved in and out of that. I think uh, there was a time in my uh, late high school, early college days where I, I, I became enmeshed in a, a form of conservative Christianity. 
and that definitely drew me to, you know, once I was in college, like, I want to know about the meaning of life, you know? So I started taking philosophy classes, uh, quickly realized that's just like mind games for intellectuals. <laughs> Didn't feel like there's anything redeeming in that. And so then I was like, what about this religious thing? Uh, and, and that's how I went off in that. But in some ways, like studying different religions kind of ruined my conservative bubble because it was like, there's no way you can go through that and have an appreciation and empathy for, you know, people from all different walks of life all over the world and think that, you know, my mode of religion is the one and only way. So that, that bubble was burst. And then it was like this flood of creativity I experienced because I wasn't confined by these specific parameters. It was the whole world was open to me now. Uh, and, uh, you know, there were some definitely creative times that came out of that. Well, it seems to me, so you said it was journalism and religion. So it's almost like one half of that is trying to figure out how people connect, how culture is established and then sort of like, what is, what is everything? Right. But then the other side is journalism, which is trying to explain it to people. So, I mean, did you have sort of those dueling impulses of the curious person and then also the, the, the teacher or the explainer? Yeah. Um, yeah. I've just, from an early age, have enjoyed uh, communication, the written word, taking complex ideas and trying to funnel them into simple little modes of information that, you know, that people can digest and, and take and act on. Um, so, and of course, I use a lot of that now um, in taking complex concepts around, you know, recycling and composting and, and bubble them, them down to the simplest form where people can remove all the barriers that stop them from acting and just go and do it. Um, so it's, it's a transferable skill, <laughs> evidently going from, you know, event promoter to uh, sustainability industry, a, uh, a budding uh, religion degree uh, college student, you know? Well, and then, so, Music is almost like uh, it, it's it's different. So if, if journalism is sort of like the intellectual outlet, then I mean, music is much more, I don't know what exactly you'd call it, intuitive. I don't know. I mean, there's an emotional draw that people have. There's something kind of instinctual about what we like about music. So it seems like it is a very well-rounded, I mean, between those three activities, right? You, you're trying to find a lot of different ways people connect and grow, right? So I mean, what, how did you how did you go, I guess, from potentially wanting to be a journalist to then DJing? Mm. <laughs> have you looked at the journalism industry these days <laughs> <laughs> is that what it was okay so you're like people will uh, always dance but they might not always buy the paper you know yeah i mean even back then you know i was in college from 2003 to uh you know for the next five years after that and if the writing was on the wall there wasn't a lot going on and uh but you know nonetheless like in college, my, um, so I made the foolish decision, I say, uh, uh, kind of offhandedly to begin DJing when I was 17 years old. And then I just became a mesh in it. And so, um, you know, so as I'm studying in college, you know, on at night, I'm going out and I'm playing music. Uh, and I started getting good at it. And I started getting good at, you know, at the beginning, you know, before I was of age to go to bars, I, I where the DJs were playing, uh, because I couldn't get access to those spaces, I had to, um, instead of just getting booked to play a bar, now I have to create the context that, you know, create the space that I want to play in. And that's what got me into event, you know, producing events, you know, okay, well, there's, let me just create my own stage. Uh, 
and uh, coffee shops were kind of an avenue for that. And at the time, you know, it was common to have an acoustic guitar player play at a coffee shop, but not a DJ. And so that I was kind of a uh, a barrier that I broke, you know. And I said, let me come into your place and play music. But you know, just being like a DJ playing lounging music in a coffee shop isn't maybe all that interesting. So it's like, okay, let's live add a live artist to it. Uh, let's add a, a live saxophone, a live drummer to it. Um, and, uh, and then, you know, now let's do it. Let's form a tour around coffee shops. And I played all kinds of coffee shops. And then I caught the attention of a journalist, uh, at the reader, uh, did an, did an article. And then that got me into, you know, the promoter land where now I started getting booked by the people who were playing, you know, booking the bars and things like that. Um, but, um, you know, kind of had this mantra early on, like work with what you got and work your way up, which is like, seems like a very conservative Republican kind of mantra. And I'm not that, but like it, it worked for me at that time, you know, that was my mantra. Um, and so, you know, yeah, I'm studying journalism and religion, but then just like, it just clicked. And I was like, this is my, this is where my passion's at. This is where my heart's at. This is where I want to go. And so I, I took, I took off and I started running. And uh, um, what I realized in, in Omaha, Nebraska at the time, this is like, um, uh 2005 right is that the rave era had ended um and um you have you know people going out and listening to dance music and they're primarily uh white middle class upper uh post rave generation folks um but then i started studying the history of dance music and i i realized it's like it's really colorful it's and it's very gay and it's and it's and it's people of the world, you know, and, and we didn't have that in Omaha. And I'm like, why can't I do what was happening, you know, places like the Paradise Garage or the Loft in, in New York in the, in the 70s and the 80s, you know, uh, or uh, the warehouse with Frankie Knuckles in Chicago, you know, and, and, and just do just, it's the, just a fraction of whatever that magic was and bring it to Omaha. And so um, we, we, we planted ourselves in a uh, Spanish restaurant in uh, Benson, uh, before Benson was like what we know now, you know, you're in Benson, right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, your office, you know, and, and it's incredible. But back then there wasn't a whole lot going on. <laughs> and uh, uh, we did what, what were called pop-up events before pop-up events was like in the vernacular. And so we, once a month, we'd go into this beautiful Spanish restaurant called España, where now Acarant is at, and we would transform it into a nightclub. Uh, and uh, it was on Thursday nights, you know, that gives you an idea of like, you know, I'm 36 now and imagine go partying on a Thursday night. No, that would not happen for me. But back then, you know, we would do that, you know, that was the start of the weekend for us. Uh, and then we started doing all these multicultural themes and, and partnering with, you know, people from the Brazilian community and from the Indian community and from the Jamaican community and, and uh, having these multicultural events. And uh, we did that for five years. It worked out great. Um, and then we got some capital, opened up our own nightclub, House of Loom on 10th and Pacific, did that for five and a half years. Uh, and then um, 2016, we just announced like, hey, our lease is up. We don't feel like we're going to go on. Let's close it down. And then between the time that we announced and, and the time that we closed on uh, December 31st, 2016, uh, New Year's Eve was our last event, Donald Trump got elected. And so when January 1st, 2017 came, you know, and we're, our nightclubs done. It was, it was the end of an era, you know, in my social circle or our, our place of home was gone. And, and for uh, some, some folks in the artists community, you know, the, that, that place is an intersection for a lot of artists in different fields that was now gone. Our nation was different because of our president. In some ways our world was different. And for me, 
that era of like, let's get together and let's celebrate and let's party and let's have a good time was over. It was time to go in our respective corners and get some work done. And so that was what was on my heart at that time. Now, like I'm, I'm done with this thing. I'm going to move on to the ne- this next thing, but I didn't know what that next thing really was. Well, it turns out in the uh, 2015, the year before we announced we were going to close on house loom. I, w- I just, I woke up three in the morning, in the middle of the night after having this dream where I envisioned I was a part of this process where people were growing things in their front yard. They weren't growing grass. It was like they were growing beautiful vegetables and plants and flowers. And that inspired me where I was like, oh, I went online right then laying in bed in the dark with my laptop and my then girlfriend, now wife, laying next to me. And I registered a couple URLs. One was prairieyardproject.com. And I had this idea that I was going to figure out a way to teach people to turn their yards into a prairie and away from like green grass, which is, which is a horrible model, which is for another conversation. Um, And so I was like, as an entrepreneur, I was like, here's an idea. Uh, It struck me with, with uh, just, just like, boom, like a, like a bolt of inspiration. And I just set it on the shelf. Right. So then now it's 2017. And I'm like, what am I going to do? What's my next thing? And, it, and I kept going back to that idea that I said on the shelf and I was like, let's take it off. Uh, and so I, I, I kind of tweaked it, worked on it for a while. And um, it didn't, it, it, I, I was like, do I really have the, the gumption, the, the, the energy to start another business and find capital and, and work, you know, that there was that first year of having the business, like you gotta work your butt off. Now I have a little kid to watch after I was like, no. So it took about a year, but then I, I got invited to a, a, a Shabbat dinner uh, with a couple of Jewish friends randomly, just ran in, literally ran into her now, her name now is Betsy, Betsy Samuelson. She's married to a, a Jewish farmer, Ben Samuelson. Uh, and I ran into him in a, in a grape field uh, in uh, Honey Creek, Iowa. <laughs> and we're like, wow, how you doing? We started talking and then she invites us over to her house uh, and then uh, you know, several months go by, we finally come over there for dinner. And I kid you not, you know, breaking bread, you know, my first Shabbat dinner ever, as I'm not Jewish, you know, they, they invited us into their custom. Uh, you know, Betsy said, Hey, I got, I work for this, you know, basically paraphrasing this startup named Hillside Solutions. They've done some great stuff. They have their, the areas only industrial composting facility. Not a lot of people know about them, but they're ready to take it to the next level. I'm working for him now, but I got a degree, uh, just finished it. I got to go into that field. Do you want my job? And, and uh, I was not expecting that. It just landed in my lap. And, you know, after uh, considering it for a long time, you know, I, I, I did, I took it. And so, and beginning of January, 2018, jumped into this job with Hillside Solutions, which I'm now in uh, still to this day. And uh, uh, that's where, you know, uh, kind of like you, you learned about composting, had epiphany, and you're like, wow, I got to tell everybody about this. I didn't really know anything about how the recycling composting world worked, but now I was the guy that was supposed to know and tell everybody else and sell the product and and build, you know, the, these programs around these services and, and stuff like that and make us stand out from billion dollar multinational competitors who are in our market. Uh, and so it was like baptism by fire. Um, and, and so... Uh, and I'll finish this off real quick so you can get a question. 
uh, it was again. And now at that point, I felt like I was in college again, going back to the college thing, like, because the first six months of work, working uh, for this company, I could feel my brain growing again. And I could, I could, if the information I was learning felt dangerous in a positive, inspiring way that I, and then now this is what I do. I, I yap and I share that information, which I hope to share with you later in this conversation about all the things that I learned as someone who was a novice, who was well-meaning, but didn't know. And what I know now about how this industry works that I want everybody to know for them, which we all have to know uh, coming into this era where we're going to have to adjust our lifestyles for climate change and create, you know, lifestyles around regenerative practices. I want to talk about this idea of it feeling dangerous. I mean, is it dangerous in the sense that it threatens some of the status quo and that in and of itself scares a lot of people or where, where does the danger come into it? Yeah. The status quo part. Right. So, okay. So here, so here I am in uh beginning of 2017, one of the first epiphanies I have, we're culturating into this idea that trash equals waste. Okay. And there's a good reason for this. It's what I call the out of sight, out of mind theory, where, you know, because, you know, through the course of humanity, at times we've been too close to our waste that's caused widespread plagues. You know, uh, you know, think about um, the bubonic plague, the black plague in, in, the, uh, in Europe and, um, and, you know, wiping out millions of people because these folks lived in their, uh, they lived in their trash, you know, and they live with rats and, you know, and so, we've been taught that we need to have a sense of separation from it in order for our own survival. Okay, cool. Now that we've established that we need to get a few steps closer to it because it turns out what I, what I realized, what I, what I learned is that uh, out of all the things that exist, all the animals and, 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 you know, they exist on this planet, humans are the only one that create waste. Everything else has figured out how to live a symbiotic life with the planet where it it's, you know, what we call zero waste. It lives a zero waste lifestyle, except us. And so what I realized is that the waste we produce is actually a resource. And we, you know, it's almost the fact that we need to stop calling it trash and calling it a resource, you know, uh, in every little pocket of opportunity. Uh, because anytime we take you know, a pile of trash and, and all we do is we send it to the landfill and we bury it in the ground. It's like taking uh, cash money out of your pocket. Uh, not that a lot of people have that anymore, but uh, putting it in the ground, burying it and forgetting about it. It's this, it's the equivalent because when we flip that stuff and we treat it like a resource that creates uh, jobs, that creates opportunities, that creates industries, that creates products. Um, and so it's, and it's just way more in, interesting and, and in alignment with Americans history of ingenuity to, to preserve and conserve that stuff and use it as a resource. So that's, that's the first thing that I learned that completely blew my mind. I'm talking today with Brent Crampton about circular food systems and industrial composting, recreational composting, all the things you can do to try to reduce your waste and change your life in doing so. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. If you're a fan of Riverside Chats and want to see the show not only continue but expand in new spin-off shows including a film club, a book club, and a news roundup, please consider becoming a Patreon at patreon.com slash riversidechats. 
For as low as just $1 a month, you get access to exclusive audio, as well as our full backlog of episodes. Our most recent 50 are always free. Older than that goes behind the paywall. So you get that plus exclusive content over at patreon.com slash riversidechats. Please consider becoming a patron today. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking all things circular food, which, I mean, actually, that sounds like donuts or something. We're actually talking about the system itself as a circle. What do we do with our waste? How do we reduce our waste? How do we become more conscious of what we use and what we don't? Brent Crampton, my guest, is doing this through Hillside Solutions, which offers composting and recycling right here in the Omaha area. Here's the rest of our conversation. I, I guess there was some point for me where I don't know that I'd ever really thought about how long it takes for things to degrade or biodegrade. And that's, that's just kind of its own moment where you realize that, you know, the, the permanent legacy of humans is probably just going to be a bunch of trash that we leave on the planet, right? You know, humans might go extinct, yeah. but the trash might outlive, probably will outlive the vast majority of everything else that we might achieve here. And just, I, I oh, guess the plastic. Yeah, I mean, like once I thought of it in those terms, it just felt to me like that that's such a sad legacy humans are choosing to leave as opposed to trying to do something else. Uh, and it's one of those things where once you I think once you make that shift, once you start to think about uh, the connections and it seems like you're really interested in the connections in you know people specifically, what it is that connects all kinds of different types of people from different walks of life. Uh, music is certainly a way of doing that. But also, I mean. The way that you think about whether, you know, trash waste uh, or what can be reused is another way of just connecting us to every living fiber of everything. So that's why it actually made me interested when you were talking about how you studied religion, because it seems like there is almost you go back to these old religious notions of, you know, the the connection that all life has to everything else. And there's certainly a way to embrace that through a lifestyle that uh, tries not to waste anything that tries to, you know, rethink the way that we manufacture what there is to throw out, what we can do with things that we might traditionally throw out. It, it changes the whole worldview for everything, right? All right. So I'm, I'm going to connect the religious studies and what I'm doing now. So, um, you know, one, you know, there's a beginning and end to everything. And this is, this is written in the Bible, you know, the way we read and understand the Bible, this is written. This is, this is how we understand our day. There's a beginning and there's an end, you know, um, in our experience with, with time. Uh, but a lot of indigenous cultures, uh, have a different view of time in their relationship to the universe. And that is circular systems. Um, and so uh, what we have now as the conventional experience with our, with our waste is what we call a take make waste model. That's a linear experience. I buy that candy bar compulsively staying in line at the grocery store. I rip open the package, throw in the trash done. Okay. And that's it. It's over. It's out of sight, out of mind. I don't think about it again. It gets buried. Boom. But that take, make, waste, that linear um, process is what's gotten us in trouble. Okay. Uh, it's, it's easy and convenient and cheap in the beginning, but you're pushing the burden down the road. And here we're now having to deal with that burden. What, what we're investing in ourselves, what we now know, you know, from our Western experience and, um, with waste is we have to get into circular models, circular modes, uh, treating those things like a resource. Um, you know, we have a version of that with recycling, right? It makes a lot of sense in everybody's mind that humans make things and we're going to reuse those things. That's recycling. Where a lot of people um, are just now waking up to is, is the how composting relates to that. Uh, and that is nature makes things. And now we're just going to reuse those things 
uh, and that's what composting is. Most people don't understand that. They 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 don't. And, and here's you know the next epiphany that I uh, one of the big ones that I realized is that um, if you ask most people, you know what happens to your head of lettuce when it goes to the landfill, they'll probably tell you. Uh, you know, they don't know, but maybe it just turns into dirt and no big deal. Okay. I've, I've heard many versions of that. Okay. And I thought the same thing, <laughs> but what I discovered was that, you know, food waste in a landfill, like a simple flimsy, uh, uh, innocent head of lettuce, uh, in a landfill, we weaponize it because now because of the way those things are structured, and I'll, I'll go into that second, uh, it will hang around for the next research shows 10 to 25 years, pumping out methane gas, which is contributes to climate change, uh, helps create uh, leachate, which is a toxic sludge, which uh, has the potential to make it itself in, into our waterways. And it just takes up space, you know, limiting the lifespan of our landfills. It comes down to just the basic science of the way landfills work that nobody teaches us or talks about. And that's, and that's it. You know, our trash goes there for the day. And at the end of the day, uh, landfills are required by law to put a layer of fill dirt on top. And that's a good idea because you don't want that stuff blowing around in neighboring communities and smells wafting around, right? But what that does is it creates an, what's called an anaerobic environment, which is a fancy way of saying oxygen can't get to our stuff to break down. Uh, and, you know, and plus it's usually wrapped in a plastic bag, which isn't going to biodegrade for probably 500 years. So, uh, turns out that, uh, anaerobic bacteria thrive in that environment. This is bacteria that don't need oxygen to live. They come in there. Uh, they eat away at our food waste, uh, for the next, you know, potential, potentially two decades. And what they're putting off is methane gas. Uh, people talk about CO2, that's a big contributor to climate change, but uh, uh, also very important is methane gas. Uh, and in fact, uh, I've seen some stats, 34% of the methane that comes out of America comes from our landfills, okay? And I've also seen a stat that uh, you know, methane gas in its first year can be uh, you know, many times worse than CO2. And so it's just, it's one of those things that we don't talk about, we don't know. And you know, when I found that out, I stopped in my tracks and I thought, if other people knew this information, they would be compelled to act and start composting. Uh, so that's one of the things I, I love sharing. And I, as I'm sure you know about as, as well. Um, and I just wanna get that out there to people, you know? An impediment that I run into when I try to convince people to compost or to be more aware of this is we live in a, a very apocalyptic feeling time. And so, so like what you were talking about before, it, <laughs> Donald Trump gets elected, and I think it had sort of two effects. One was it did motivate a lot of people to get involved who might otherwise not have felt so, uh, you know, felt the same kind of immediacy. But then you also have people who sort of feel fatalistic and feel like, especially with the environment and some of the, the, the you know, the, the doom-like sort of projections we get of what things will feel or what they will be like. is pe People just sort of accept, like, I don't know if it's going to matter, and I don't know if it's worth trying to figure out. And they, they feel pessimistic and like, you know, we have, you know, 20 years before it's all over anyway, so why, do, why should I try? So, I mean, I'm sure you get stuff like that. And how do, you, how do you navigate the sort of like doom and apocalyptic attitude we have with actually trying to make people care and improve things going forward? Man, 
you just gotta hang out with uh more positive people <laughs> <laughs> or maybe you're, you're around too many evangelists I, I don't know but uh i actually don't i don't hear that a whole lot um and um you know i i think um here, here's what i hear often and, th- and that's that you know more and more every day the people that are coming to us and making making their way into our inboxes and and uh you know phone conversations is people believe that climate change increasingly is a uh is a threat to existence and you know they feel like you know there's been a lack of leadership in this space what can the individual do what can the business do what can our community do in that absence uh and that's that's where we come in, you know, on that community level, we got stuff you can do today, right now, like put down, you know, your earbuds and go outside and start a compost pile. We can tell you ways to do it with stuff just laying around your house without spending any money, you know, or you can click of a, a couple clicks of a button, sign up for, you know, one of our programs that lets you start, you know, bringing it to us and, you know, we'll make turn into soil and give you some of it back. Uh, you know, so we don't have to wait upon the city of Omaha to negotiate a, acceptable contract that includes, you know, a reasonable amount of yard waste composting or more like you can do it now. And, and that's really, you know, our beat, you know, is like, let's not talk about all the bad things that are happening. Like there's good things happening every single day. And we're a part of that. You want to join the conversation? Let's go. Now the city of Omaha is probably worth talking about because I, I noticed that there are certainly a lot of businesses that offer a compost option. Now it seems like that's been increasing. Like I, I love when I'm able to go to like Zen coffee shop and you know, the, just when I don't have to throw yeah. things out because it's compost is one of those things where once, once you get used to dividing up uh, what you may have thrown out, you know, before you figured out ways to recycle or compost effectively, it's difficult to switch your mindset. It feels like there's something immoral about throwing anything out at a certain point. But uh, Omaha is not, I mean, sometimes it's, it takes a while for things to change in Omaha. It takes a while for the city to catch up with some of the attitudes that maybe people are interested in. And it takes a while for people to realize maybe their own interest in some of these, uh, some of these proposals. So how do you get Omaha to come on board with the mission that you guys have? Every day in our city, there's somebody somewhere on the individual level or business corporate level saying, all right we're ready to do something. What can we do? And that's, that's the point where we intersect with people. I'm not interested in talking to someone and trying to convince them that change needs to happen. Uh, that's a different process. You know, we're just trying to meet the growing need and the growing sense of urgency around the people that do understand something needs to change and are ready to take action, but just need a little bit of direction or that infrastructure. Zen coffee, the how they offer uh you know composting to their customers that infrastructure is us we do that you know we uh you know we work with um you know when it comes to just small local businesses you know um, archetype coffee coneflower Acurant, ted and wally's amateur modern love Le boulon kitchen table the switch food hall exarban village box 16 lola's noli's uh kitchen council uh, and then, you know, there's big hitters, you know, like Creighton University, we're taking 8,000 pounds of compostables from them a month, and that's about to grow, uh, you know, working with, you know, UNO and UNMC and Mutual of Omaha, uh, and, uh, and, and, and more. I mean, anything from, you know, uh, world-class 
you know, corporate offices where huge decisions are made, like at the, the C-suites of HDR, uh, composting their paper towels, the mom pop shops, you know, taking pizza crust from Noli's and Blackstone, like we're, we got it, you know, and we're building that infrastructure out uh, every day. So is there a future where you can eliminate landfills or are they a permanent fixture in human societies? That's a good question. Um, I think, you know, some, some things do need to get thrown away uh, in a landfill. They, they serve a, an appropriate need. Medical waste, for example, it's got to go somewhere. Um, but, you know, w- we've made that the default rather than the exception. And so, you know, w- what we're going to have to do over the next five to 10 years is basically flip that equation and uh, you know usher in a new era so that takes a lot of strategic rethinking of how our our systems are set up and so you know that 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 brings me to you know one of the other major epiphanies that i that i came across Uh, i used to think that you know as as i've come across a lot of other people that think this too like when you recycle it absolves your consumption which is a way of saying like okay i love drinking out of water bottles for the convenience or whatever but, and it's okay that I drink water from water bottles because I'm going to recycle them. And so it's a net even, right? Wrong. Uh, and, and this is something like things that I didn't just know about the inner workings and the background of, of recycling. And, and that is, is like, you know, there's, there's the upstream and downstream waste problem when it comes to, you know, the single use items that we have. So even though you recycle that water bottle, it took an exponential amount of uh, energy and water and resources just to create it and get it to your hand, okay? And then at the end of the day, uh, at the current state of recycling, although there's some changes coming, uh, that water bottle can't be turned into another water bottle. Plastic at, at its current conventional state doesn't work like that. It ha- it's like resaving a JPEG over and over again. It gets downgraded each, each time in quality so that water bottle probably becomes like saran wrap which is not a recyclable thing unless you know you use energy bag and that's a whole nother conversation so uh you know there luckily there are things like aluminum uh that can be recycled an infinite amount of times you know so just you know if you see if you have to choose between a a water bottle plastic and you know a, a can always go for the can option that's that's the better one um, but you know, and so now a lot of restaurants have you know pivoted to compostable serviceware. So, you know, so that's great. You're growing out of styrofoam takeout stuff or you know uh, plastic forks or whatever things like that. That's that's a good step. Now you're using compostable stuff. Um, and and you know, but what what we see happen is that uh, um, not a lot of restaurants are actually making sure or equipping the 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 consumer to know that that has to go in a an industrial composting stream, which maybe I'll talk about in a little bit. Um, but even the compostable service where it takes a lot of energy to make that stuff. I think, you know, the way I view it is, you know, what we're going through right now, um, it, you know, in terms of our climate crisis is imagine us reading a novel. And if we're just to go flip to the last chapter and like, okay, how does this whole thing end? I, I have to know. Uh, it, the, the story doesn't go, and everybody recycled and composted everything. No, it doesn't say that. It says, and everybody reduced the amount of waste that they uh, consumed. They reused the things that they could. They refused the things that they didn't need. You know, they rethought entire systems to not create waste 
in the first place. Uh, and that's really the way this, when it comes to sustainability within the solid waste conversation, that's how the story ends, is just re reduce, reducing, reusing, rethinking. Uh, and, you know, will there be uh, a landfill somewhere in that? Uh, oh, I'm sure, you know, but uh, businesses are signing on board families, households are signing on board for zero waste lifestyles, you know, and being more in sync with you know, every other creature on the planet, you know, doing that. Uh, and that's really where we're going to, we're going to head, you know, in the next couple of decades. Well, okay. So you mentioned it. Let, let's try to talk about the different types of composting then. So industrial composting, what is the distinction? I mean, I, I my guess, and I know I've seen it, but I don't actually know exactly. It has to do with the the temperature it can reach, right? Yeah. So um, I'm glad you brought this up because there's a lot of confusion around this. So if, if people do know about composting at home, you know, what, what, what we know about that is like the big three that you can compost safely at home and easily is your yard waste, your vegetable scraps, your fruit scraps. You can do some more stuff, but that's the main gist. Um, when we jump up to industrial composting, it's a whole different game because, because of the intensity uh, and the process we can take all pre and post consumer food waste, including meat, dairy, bones, things that you would get, uh, you know, get into some trouble if you put a T-bone uh, in your home compost pile, but we can take that. Uh, we, you know, the restaurant industry, uh, after 2018, plastic straws got beat up in the media narrative and they said, all right, let's go to paper straws. And okay, let's also get rid of other single use plastics, you know, and styrofoams and, you, and now let's start using compostable stuff. Um, that's where the story ended for a lot of restaurants, but it turns out that they didn't go far enough because if that compostable, you know, packaging and that compostable fork and that compostable cup don't make it to one of our, well, our facilities can break it down. If they don't make it to our facility, if they go in recycling, it's considered contamination and actually costs the recycling facility money to get it, pull it out of the stream. If it goes to landfill, we now know like the head of lettuce, it's going to put off methane gas for the next couple of decades. So it doesn't belong there. It has to go to our facility. And so we have the capacity to break that stuff down. So, and here, and here's the cool thing is that, um, you know, in our sustainable future, you know, you have to imagine you know, what, how are the adjustments we're going to make in society? And one of them is that every major community and, and, and town is going to have an industrial composting facility nearby. Um, and the good news is that Omaha, the greater Omaha area already has one. Uh, and so, you know, my company, Hillside Solutions, our affiliate, Soil Dynamics, we have a, a composting farm in Ashland, Nebraska. Uh, and so, you know, we work with, you know, schools taking lunch waste and their paper, paper uh, food trays and napkins. We work with the city of Bellevue. We take their residential yard waste. We work with the zoo taking animal manure. Uh, we work with, uh, you know, a variety of restaurants and institutions, organizations, um, you know, taking paper towels, um, you know, compostable serviceware that's now flooding the market uh, and, you know, any and all food and, you know, all kinds of things. If nature made it, you can generally compost it in the, in the industrial setting. Uh, so it's a whole different ballpark, uh, and, but a necessary component to, you know, having a sustainable infrastructure uh, for any community. Now, uh, you talked a little bit about lawns and you said you, we, we might not have time to get into the whole issue of green grass and the way people use the land that they have. But I, I do want to get into it a little bit because maybe we could do an abbreviated version of that. 
Uh, lawns are another thing that I feel like it's it becomes this sort of slippery slope of you know whether whether we want to call it epiphanies for everybody or not, but like. Um, going from composting for me led to just being more aware of my interaction with what's natural, what's unnatural, thinking about yards, thinking about animals in the yards and all of that. And so I've also become obsessed with, you know, I I'm interested in reducing grass. I'm interested in, you know, possibilities of rewilding wherever that's possible. And so, I mean, what, what is, what is your relationship with the lawn and what do you think people should be doing with the land they have? You mentioned you got into composting and then you went down the rabbit hole. Mm. Um, I think you think about the conversation of sustainability that society has, uh, the entry point for a lot of people was in 2018 with, with, uh, plastic straws that was, you know, our, 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 you know, getting rid of plastic straws. Is that that big of a deal? And ah, the scheme of things, not really, but it was a gateway to people to start considering the role, uh, of single use plastics and how we needed to transition out of that. So, um, you know, it's my sense that, you know, as people go further down that rabbit hole, they're going to start looking, you know, after they get past the, the, the obvious things, they're going to start looking at all the other faucets of the facets of their, of their lifestyle. And eventually our focus is going to uh, gaze upon our lawns and we're going to start questioning where did this concept of green manicured, perfect chemical grass that that takes a you know uh fossil fuel burning instrument to keep it in check come from uh and it and turns out it came from uh france and european uh uh royalty and, and you know and and that whole thing and somehow we took this to be like the cream of the crop of like suburban living you know having a wonderful green grass lawn and now it's assumed that everybody has to do this and it's this ridiculous asinine concept and we have to let go of it i mean we got to transition out of it uh because it's basically in terms of you know an ecological perspective it's a desert you know animals can't thrive in that you know you, not a lot of bugs and things like that can thrive in those things and especially if you're splashing it with chemicals good lord uh you know good luck so you know and it's it's a perfect opportunity to you know grow things that are going to bring in bees and, and and bring in butterflies and and give uh you know you know bring in critters that then are going to bring in you know the hawks you know and and basically rebuild our our ecosystem uh, right in your front and back yard uh, not to mention start growing food you know, so then next time, you know, something happens, society and all of a sudden we're, you know, pandemic and we're questioning where we're going to get our next meal. The grocery store is going to have stuff on its shelf. You don't have to worry because you got a, a meal right in your front or backyard, food security. Uh, so it's, it's just a wasted, um, it's a missed opportunity just covering our, 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 our uh, lawns in uh, green grass, you know. Well, but I, grass is one of those things where it's, I don't think people can intellectualize what it is they like about it other than just, it seems normal and it seems maybe like an element of status, but it's just, we're, we're used to it. Right. So, I mean, it's weird to argue against it because I don't think people can really tell you what's good about it. I mean, there's not a, other than a perceived aesthetic, there's not really an argument for grass. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think people kind of overhype the idea of like, well, you know, I, I'm going to use it with my family. And it's like, well, how often are you actually in your, your front lawn with your family, you know, playing ball? How often does that actually happen? <laughs> well, let the animals take over because they'll use it every day, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but yeah, so that's, that's the diatribe uh, on the, on the green grass stuff. And, but, you know, it, it, and it relates to what's going on right now in the city of Omaha, you know, we've just committed ourselves to a 10 to 20 year residential contract where for a short window in the spring and the fall, they're going to do limited yard waste collection and every, and uh, all other times, um, you know, it's going to have to go to the landfill where it's going to produce methane gas, uh, not, not in an ideal situation. And it's really a, a missed opportunity for the city to move in the right, the right direction of sustainability, whereas we're you now have a regressive policy pointing us in the, the opposite direction. While we're debating this, let's just stop for a second and question the premise. What are you putting in that bag on the curb? Are you bagging your grass clippings and trying to send that to the landfill? Why are you doing that? That's food for your lawn. Your lawn needs those grass clippings to thrive. Leave it there. Leave it there. Speaking of leaves, right? Everyone's raking them up right now, you know, at the time of us recording this. Um, uh, you know, why? Just mow that in, mulch that into your lawn. That is food for your lawn. Uh, there's no reason to, to bag it up, wasting that time, having to buy those bags, put it in there, you know, and then sending it to the landfill to put off methane gas, you know. So, uh, you know, again, it goes back to these, these, these structures that were acculturated into and, and the sustainability conversation, the circular conversation is now making us stop and say, wait, let me question that and think, is there a different way I can do this? And there is. And, and the answer is generally uh, cheaper uh, than what we're usually doing and just wittier and more interesting. So as we wrap up here, tell me what are, what are for someone maybe who is just joining us, what are the services that Hillside offers and what should people be considering maybe adding to their lifestyle? Yeah. So, you know, you can think of Hillside uh, like a trash hauling company. You know, but the difference between us and, you know, the, the average one is that uh, we want to do everything with your trash other than put in the landfill, you know, so what options between recycling and composting are there, you know, we're working with businesses, uh, as, as well as through our affiliates, like with homes, uh, and helping people separate, you know, their waste in upwards of six different ways, uh, you know, to send to different places to be treated as a resource. And, uh, you know, we work with a lot of businesses who have sustainability goals. You know, it's, it's more common now for, for a business uh, to have a zero waste goal or to go carbon neutral by blah, blah, blah. And in order to do that, you know, you need to get into some robust recycling and composting services. And so we help people sort of meet their sustainability goals through that. Uh, and then the other thing is, you know, um, as a listener, um, we have this program called Compost Club. And it's a way for residential people to connect to our industrial composting facility where they sign up for it uh, and they can then gain access to a network of drop-off sites around the city. We take that stuff, turn it into soil. You have the opportunity to get some of that soil back. We're also, or create the opportunity where you can donate it to local food gardens in the spring. Uh, and all that's at hillside.solution slash compost club uh, to sign up for that. Uh, so Yeah. All right. Well, I, I'm glad I got the chance to talk to you and learn a little bit about this. Uh, I, as I've said before, I'm just a freak about kind of going down these rabbit holes and trying to figure out how I can transform my life. And I hope you've inspired some people to at least look at the rabbit hole, whether they're ready to jump into it or not. So thank you for talking to me today. Wonderful. appreciate the opportunity, man. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exarban Creative. You can find our backlog wherever you get podcasts. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. We'll be back next week. I'm Tom Noblock, and thank you for listening.